Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. NJ, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to open up to us about this period in your life. Let's start with some background. So can you tell us where you grew up and what kind of life you had growing up? Well, I grew up in a town 27 miles west of Boston and had a mother and a father and a sibling and nice house, good education had a summer house on Cape Cod, had piano lessons, dance lessons, tennis lessons, you know, everything that kids want. It was a a normal, decent childhood. I think I went a little left of center when I got into puberty in my teen years. My mother and I started to fight like crazy. They sent me to a private high school because they didn't want me to go to the public high school because there was way too many kids there. And by the end of my junior year, I was like, I'm out of here. And that's when things really got interesting. I had run away from home a couple of times in the mid seventies, but always came back. My parents were separated in 1978 and they didn't divorce until the early eighties until they moved to Florida. But by the time I did finish school, They were already making plans to go to Florida because my father got a really good job down there with his firm. I didn't want to go. And not having them around really made it easy for me to run rampant and run wild. So I met a man who was 12 years older than myself. And I thought this was great. I thought this was great. How old were you at that point? I was 18. And not living at home. I'd already moved out. Like, they didn't move to Florida until 79. So he ran with a pretty rough crowd. And I thought this was great. He was handsome. He had money, dressed nice, took me to nice places, blah, blah, blah. So he was going to Florida with his brother and some of their friends. And he told me that by the time he got back from Florida, I needed to have a job. I'm like, really? A job? (laughs) What the hell's that? So one day I'm reading the Boston Globe and the classifieds and models, no experience necessary, the Roy D. Agency, and it was in Boston and it was on the corner of Tremont and Boylston Street, I think. 
I remember Brigham's being on the ground floor because I loved Brigham. Brigham's ice cream. <laughs> I miss I miss Brigham's. Me too. <laughs> so up I went, and it wasn't a half an hour later that I was being walked down to the combat zone with a little two-piece red bikini into the naked eye to dance. And for whatever reason, I had no hesitation. The only thing I ever knew about the combat zone was the Harvard football player getting murdered. And that happened. I was still a teenager when that happened, right? That was 76. Yeah. Yeah. So that was two years before. So I was still pretty sheltered, but, you know, a little on the wild side. I had already started drinking, smoking marijuana and experimenting with cocaine. So up I went onto the stage, five songs, which is 20 minutes. And the last song, you are completely naked. And yet I didn't have a problem with that. Wow. You know, we, we consider you, as we were joking around the last time we said, you know, usually you have boots on the ground. You are our heels on the ground. And oh, yeah. So for our listeners, can you just give them a little bit of a visual on the combat zone, the vibe, kind of just this is a piece of, of Boston history. And you've. You, oh, you've it's, it's right definitely there. a piece of Boston history. Yeah. It was confined to an area mainly on Washington Street. There were a couple of clubs on Tremont. So it was mainly confined from Stewart Street, which was the theater district, up to where the retail stores were. Now they call it Downtown Crossing. It used to be the Diamond District. So it was really only a three-block radius. You know, you had LaGrange Street, which was really seedy, but we'll get into that later. And it was like bright lights all the time, lit up. You had regular dancing clubs, you had peep shows, you had dirty movie houses, and you had pimps and prostitutes running the streets. And I guess city council or whatever, this happened way before my time, decided that if we contain it to one area, the residents of Boston won't be that upset about it. And it stayed that way for a really long time. It was there well before 1978, and it stayed there until they started, you know, gentrification. And the Chinese, it was on the border of Chinatown, and the, and the Chinese residents really didn't like it. But yet all the Chinese guys used to go into the clubs and look at all the naked girls. <laughs> if you were to drive south on Washington Street, you had this huge sign, the naked eye. And like uh, the girl would tip into the drink, you know, neon sign. And then you had the silver slipper, the pussycat lounge. Club 66 was around the corner on Tremont Street. You had a couple pizza places. You had the offices of the guys that owned the club who were in the mob. And you had a up above there or in that building, you had the costume designer who made all your costumes. And I just thought it was cool. I just thought it was really, really cool. It sounds it was, cool. <laughs> yeah. I had no fear. And and that, had, that 
that costume designer was a trans woman, right? It's somebody, a man who had transitioned into a woman. Yes, yes. One of um, them. God, or, I forget her name. Yeah. I forget her name, but she made one of my costumes and it was $500 and it had all kinds of different things, you know, sequins and a hat and a G-string. And it's just technically your fifth song at any club during the, that time. That was what you did your floor show to. So you'd be doing like yoga poses and all different directions and people could see everything. And there again, no fear, no trepidation. And I'm yeah. even that first time that you went into the naked eye and that's amazing. That's that was amazing. it. Yep. Yeah. So how does the so tra transition happen from being a dancer to being a prostitute? Well, I had danced at several clubs and I'd met the hookers and, you know, I think I'd been into Charlie's just to have a drink with a hooker friend. And I met this girl, Lori. I sent you her picture. Yes. And she had a pimp named Chico. And he was actually, he lived in the same town that I grew up in. And I, I guess she was recruiting me because he needed another girl. I guess she was his only girl. So I started working with her on bachelor parties. Well, those were real fun. You do a simulated girl show. So you would do the simulated girl show and then you would invite the bachelor into the simulated girl show. And then you would go into a separate room and give blowjobs for 20 bucks each. And a couple hours later, you both walked with like four or $500 each. So then I was at Charlie's full on with a pimp. And my only regret about that time is not stashing away or investing all the money that I made. I spent it as fast as I earned it. I gave it to a pimp who in the end wanted to kill me because I was stashing a little money on the side and he found out and he also found out that I was trying to leave. But it was just, all I can say, I guess in those times, they were heady, really heady times. You know, it was the 70s. It was we're right out of the 60s and the free love thing is still going on. And, you know, the disco music, it was very, I loved the music. And it was just, it was almost like a seamless transition, if that makes any sense. And again, there was no fear, no trepidation. And what role did drugs play in all this? Drugs played a not a huge part, but a significant part. Chico would give me a gram of cocaine in a dollar bill to last me the night. I did a little, little, when I was at the clubs, I did a little selling of the cocaine, but my cocaine use exploded in the 80s. It really, really didn't have that much of, a, of an effect. I mean, it was there, you did it, and... When you had a pimp, you were expected to do it. And if your pimp took you and your wife-in-law, that's what they're called, the other girl, out to a party, you were expected to do it. Willie Moses, he was the manager of Good Time Charlie's. He didn't want drugs in the club. So it wasn't like you could go in the bathroom and, you know, sniff, sniff and be done with it. 
He also didn't want girls that worked the streets in his club. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was, you know, I got to, I got to buy nice clothes. I got to go up to Jordan Marsh and Filene's and get some perfume and some makeup and things like that. And I always tried to look my best. Not like now. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was something. It really was. And I never got arrested. Never. Did it feel like we are of a certain generation? Did it feel, and I, I feel like we all felt like we were immortal when we were in our whatever, late teens, early 20s. It just felt like a party, it sounds like. Well, you, you know? Oh, yeah. A 24-7 party. So what they- once, you work, once you work for a pimp, there was no days off. You could tell them that, you know, you were on your menstrual cycle and it was really bad. And it was like, oh, no, you'll figure it out. Really? Ew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a street party. It was a costume party. It was a dance party. It was, it was a lot of things. I mean, when I got involved with this pimp and, and Lori, you know, she would tell me the do's and the don'ts, who to talk to, who not to talk to. There was a pimp by the name of Sweet George, and he had five or six women, and we used to call them the Stepford Wives. We weren't allowed to talk to them, and they weren't allowed to talk to any of the other girls. And each of those girls, his girls, were required to make $500 each a night. Wow. I have no idea what happened to them. If they didn't, I never asked. You know, occasionally you'd see the vice cops drive around. You knew, you know, you, either you were told by people who they were or you knew what car they were in or whatever. I happened to get along really well with Billy Dwyer. He was a complicated person. We would go out after hours and, um, and drink. Ex- explain to our listeners who Billy Dwyer was. Billy Dwyer was... He was the he was the head vice cop down there, and he was really good looking. He was real, and he was very charismatic. His partner Mark Malloy was kind of you know frumpy, whatever. But Billy wouldn't wouldn't hesitate to tell you about yourself. But I I wasn't afraid of the police. I wasn't afraid of anything. How that is, I have no idea. My youth, my I have no. I'm 61 years old now. I think about things before I do them. But yeah, Billy and I started hanging out, kind of confided in him about the situation with Chico. And he knew who Chico was and he knew who Lori was. And of course, I couldn't let anybody else know that I had buddied up with a vice cop. That would have been not good. When I went to leave Chico, you just can't leave a pimp period, point blank, end of conversation. I was on the telephone with a friend of mine telling her that I was going to leave. And unbeknownst to me, he was on the other side of the door with his key in the door ready to come in. And he heard me telling this friend of mine that I was going to leave. He went into the kitchen and he grabbed a steak knife. He didn't hurt me. He came at me. Then he said, bitch, you better not go anywhere. I'm coming back for you. And he left. And I went, oh, 
yeah, I'll stay. I'll wait for you. <laughs> right. So I went upstairs to a neighbor's apartment and I called Billy Dwyer and he got me out of there. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I totally left the combat zone behind. I moved to Medford, a little north of Boston. I got a job in Boston and I stayed out of the combat zone for a long time. I'm saying maybe a year or so. And then slowly I went back down for drinks and stuff, but I never, ever did anything in the combat zone ever again. So what prompted you to make that decision to leave that life? A, By a, a, a butcher knife. And a threat. So I got down there in 78. It was now 83, 84. And the vibe was changing. There were more girls robbing guys. Cocaine had started to turn into crack. Right. So, so the whole vibe changed. And I, I think I was done. You know, I had a couple of regulars that I had their phone, you know, had their phone numbers that I would still continue to see, but I didn't, there was no more Charlie's, there was no more drinking with Billy after hours. It was, you're going to go to work and you're going to get on the orange line and you're going to go to home and, you know, make some dinner and go to bed. Did Chico ever try to find you? Mm-hmm. Yep. He sure did, but he didn't. Thank God. And then, yeah, thank God. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Can I ask you, NJ, you were involved with a guy who was 12 years older than you. Did that continue through your time in the combat zone? Until I crossed to the other side. Yes, it did. Because he offered me a sense of protection because he knew all the club owners. So, I mean, and he would come in. I mean, he'd see me dance before and just to make sure that I was okay. And I appreciated that. But yeah, slowly but surely... I don't know. I guess now that I was in my early 20s, maybe I started to wake up a little bit. I don't know. So, you know, Sarah and I obviously have covered some of the violence in the combat zone and the murder of Robin Benedict. And were you afraid? I mean, there were some of these killings and we've talked about the high profile killings, but there were quite a few murders in the combat zone of prostitutes. There was. And, you know, I didn't know the girls who were murdered at that time, there were a lot of street prostitutes that were murdered. I carried a small pair of scissors in my palm. And so I would take the handle and put it in my palm. And if anything happened, I'd be ready to hurt somebody. I'm going to say something and it's going to sound kind of narcissistic, but it isn't meant to be. I didn't look like a hooker. I had nice clothes, had nice hair, nice makeup, and I carried myself and talked kind of like the way I'm talking to you guys now. Right. So you may not right. be targeted. Right. But yeah, there there was violence. And, and as we turned from the 70s into the 80s, the violence got worse. And that was because the drugs were getting different. You know, I didn't think that there, there was a whole lot of I mean, there was crime. Of course, there was crime with cocaine. But the crime with crack was a whole different animal. Absolutely. Whole, yeah. whole yeah. different animal. People on crack would do just about anything, including. Yeah. So I think I got out right at the right time. 
I think about the combat zone sometimes and I, you know, I'm grateful that I'm here. I'm in Connecticut. I'm, you know, I'm in private duty elder healthcare person. <laughs> um, I have two cats. I've lived in the same place for 12 years. You know, and like I said, my only regret is that I didn't stash away or invest the money, some of the money that I made. I, I would have had a house at the Cape. I could have bought the house that my parents sold when they got divorced. You yeah. know, I, I would have loved to have bought a house at the Cape. I would have moved there and stayed there. But, you know, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty normal average person with a good life. I have a good life. I've been researching Robin Benedict mm -hmm. and, and her life. And, and there are Billy Dwyer also figures very much in that story, of course. She also seems to have had a similar background. Very you know, similar. As very it, similar that you did that that you know there I think sometimes the the myth is that people who turn to sex work come from broken homes or they're orphans or they're you know wards of the state or, or they've been molested right or, or I some think that yeah big yeah, traumatic yeah. thing and, and you guys are kind of normal middle class kids middle class white kids you two, know two parents at home yeah two yeah. parents siblings she got a scholarship to rhode island school of design and that was a big deal college to get a scholarship to she was and, brilliant and you yourself went to northeastern you guys yeah. are you're smarties you know you yes. you know did you know her did you know i knew of her she was the kind of girl who stayed by herself came into charlie's always dressed really nice. She was naturally beautiful. And I was in Charlie's the night that she disappeared. And I was leaving. And if you walk up LaGrange Street to Tremont Street, there's a parking lot on the right before you get to Tremont Street, or there was anyway. And anybody could use the parking lot. And she was coming out of the parking lot and parking her car, you know, after parking her car, going in. And I think to myself, that's the car that he put her in. Uh, March 5th, I always, I'm, my mom is Jewish and my dad wasn't. So I kind of, I, Jewish by choice, really. I, I light a Yartzeit candle in her memory every March 5th. And it was, 30, it was 37 years two months ago. Did you know the professor, William Douglas? Did you know of nope. him? Did you? Nope. Okay. okay. Nope. Never saw him. And if he was in, in Charlie's when I was, I wouldn't know him if I fell over him. I think after their initial meeting, they spent very little time at Charlie's after that. Right. The uh, Married with Secrets program movie or whatever it was yeah. that they did Robin, I was horrified by that. I was horrified. They changed so much of the truth. And even Billy wrote in his book that he was really disappointed. And the producers had said, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And he he was just horrified by that. And what, um, why? why what, what was the... Well, I think, I think that they, they embellished so much. She didn't have a pimp named Lewis. He wasn't white. And I don't even know if the guy that she was with, Jr., who was black, I don't know if that was her boyfriend or her pimp. So why, like, why did they have to embellish like that? Right. 
Right. I thought the actress that they picked to play her was all kinds of wrong because she was not pretty like Robin was pretty. Yeah. You know, at least, you know, give the girl some do, will you? I mean, JR hired an yeah. investigator to find her. He was yeah, distraught. He, he loved her. Perfectly. I, I mean, he yeah. was absolutely distraught. Yep. And I think if I had been Robin and I had been arrested by Billy Dwyer and had my dad called, I don't know if I would have gone back. And and that's nothing, not faulting Robin. Different different people, different circumstances. Everybody was pretty wigged out when she went missing. And as the as it progressed fairly rapidly, and to find out that, you know, she was hooked up with this guy who had this really fantastic position at Tufts, which literally was right around the corner. Right. I mean, literally a stone's throw from LaGrange Street is Tufts Medical Center. And knowing what he had done. Unbelievable. And, and knowing what the family had been through and knowing that it's been 37 years and there's still no closure for this family. Another book is coming out in the fall. Oh, um, is that true? Yeah, it's called Boston Tabloid, The Case of Robin Benedict. I thought that the 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 first book, Missing Beauty. Yes. I thought that Teresa Carpenter did a really good job. I of, agree, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, we actually. I mean, that was accurate. That was that was accurate. Uh, yeah. And she um, she really uh, paints Robin and her family in a very compassionate way. Yeah, very I also wanted to ask you about the diversity of the combat zone because growing up in Boston, Boston is actually a very kind of divided area, you know, especially yeah. back then, you know, you didn't oh, yeah. go into Southie or Charlestown if you were black or you didn't go yeah. into the North End. But well, you uh, didn't go into Dorchester or Roxbury if you were white. Right. So, but it seems like the combat zone my father said it was a rite of passage, you know, to go to the combat zone. So it seems like the combat zone, anybody could go to. Anybody. And anybody. So you could be black, white, rich, poor, gay, straight. Yep. yep. Listen, when I worked at the Naked Eye, the featured dancer, Princess Cheyenne, whose name is Lucy Johnson, who live now, I think still does on the South Shore. Her boyfriend was Cat Stevens, the singer. Yes. Oh, yeah. Who I love. And so, yeah, anybody could go. Which you is know, very the, the interesting. Insurance, the insurance guys like my dad. I don't know if my dad ever went to the combat zone. I never asked him. But, uh, you know, the insurance guys from the Prudential Center and the John Hancock Tower. Yeah, come on down. All the colleges. Colleges. Yeah. Yep. And the Chinese. There were a lot of Chinese guys that liked looking at the ladies. So it yeah. seems it's just interesting to me at a time. I mean, you know, you had the busing uh, riots in the 70s. You had so much uh, strife, right? Yep. Strife, racial like stri tensions in the tensions in Boston um, at that time that you had this one place where everybody could kind of I mean, maybe they weren't singing Kumbaya, but they could sit side by side at the bar. And that's very interesting because I can't think of other places 
you know, e even in Cambridge probably wasn't, you know, it, it just seems very interesting. Maybe Harvard Square. Maybe Harvard Square, like but a little yeah. yeah, maybe Harvard Square. Um, oh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't matter who you were when you were there. It didn't matter the color of your skin, racial makeup, your financial makeup. Everybody was there for the same reason. Right. Interesting. That's yeah, probably the only place in Boston at that time where everybody was there for the same reason. Did the you, girls were there. Yeah, go ahead. With with the prostitutes, was there sort of a hierarchy between, was like the strippers, the certain level of prostitute, like escort, and then the street prostitute? Was there any kind of a sense of hierarchy? There was a certain kind of hierarchy in Charlie's where if you knew that Dan Smith was Lorna's trick. Don't go and ask him for a date. Because then if Lorna found out, she'd beat you up. Street prostitutes were kind of frowned upon if you were in Charlie's. And like I said before, Willie Moses said, no street girls are coming in here. If, they, if he saw you on the street working, he remembered your face hierarchy within the process. So I'm the second girl, right? Lori was the first girl. So I had to look up to her. You know, what she said goes, we're going to do this tonight, or we're going to do that tonight. And sometimes that got a little annoying because I'm the kind of person where, please don't tell me what to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just yeah. don't. That's what got me in trouble in my family. Just don't tell me what to do. It's just so interesting. I just had to ask, though, too. You mentioned Sweet George and the Stepford Wives, the uh, his co you know coterie of six girls or whatever it was. Why yes. did you Why did you guys call them the Stepford Wives? I got to know that because they all looked alike and dressed alike. Which Which is how we give us a visual on that. Um. <laughs> Solid colored dresses or two-piece suits. No pants were allowed. Long hair always curled. And yeah, that was really, it was always solid colored attire, whether it was a dress or a two-piece skirt and blazer. And and uh, they all had long hair and they, they all, all had it curled nicely. And they all, that's why we call them the Stepford Wives. They all looked the same. Hilarious. hilarious. Yeah. And they were told not to talk to us, not to talk to anybody in the bar, do your job, do, do what you got to do and get out. And we didn't talk to them. Unbelievable. It's, a, it's like a uniform. I love it. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we also have to thank old dirty Boston because that's how we yes. found you. And yep. uh, that they, was a couple of years ago, I did that. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's just fantastic to get, as I said, you're our heels on the ground here on Jay. And it, just to somebody who was, you have a real valuable insiders. I don't know how kind of in your life you look back on this period, but it sounds like it was mostly pretty great in, in many ways. And aside from... Not saving the money, which I, you know, Lauren, I both, not, you know. <laughs> aside from not saving the money and then fearing for my life when I went to leave, it was, it, uh, 
It was. I mean, I saw a lot. I did a lot. I probably saw some things that I never thought I'd see ever. But it just, at that time and my attitude, it just didn't matter. I was there. I was, I was full on, full on. Just fascinating because we've interviewed so many people that talk about your perspective, but to mm-hmm. actually have your perspective. All these people write about the combat zone, but they're not actually the ones who lived it. And so if the combat, if the combat zone was still the way it was back in the 70s, I'd probably go down there for a drink. Right. I would definitely go down there for a drink. That's all. You right. know, I wouldn't do anything else, but I definitely would go down into one of the clubs, the naked eye or the silver slipper or the pussycat and, and have a couple of drinks. Why not? I think the dirtiest thing you're going to find down there is a martini and it's probably about, you know, 20 bucks at this point. You know? I know. You know you know, I miss old Boston. I got to say when I ran Boston in 2015, I took a bus up and I walked to this little hostel in the South end that I had booked to stay there. And so I came up Atlantic Ave and I cut through Chinatown and I'm on Beach Street and I get to Washington Street and I'm like, oh, glass buildings, no Dino's, no, not even a, not even an adult bookstore. Like, come on, (laughs) give a guy something, will you? And it's. It just seems so wrong. It just really did. It just, it's like, no. Too sanitized. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very. And I don't even know, I don't even know if there is an adult district in Boston anymore. Who I, needs I don't it when you, have, when you have your phone? Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Laura's not speaking from experience, by the way. Oh, I mean, not that I, I wouldn't know or anything, but I, I've heard. <laughs> From the young people. Yeah, exactly. And if I catch my daughters on them, I'll kill them. (laughs) Well, NJ, this has been such a pleasure. I could talk to you all day. Absolutely. And uh, if you ever come up to Medford, let's go have a a coffee. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we may be picking your brain more because we have some more episodes to do. And since you are the heels on the ground, we may come back to you with more questions. No problem. Anytime. What a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you, ladies. Murder, murder.